Hello, welcome to Soma Stories, a podcast vessel for inquiry around the body, hosted by me, Shamin. Each episode gathers and weaves various perspectives around a related issue. Our hope is that this podcast will be a space for the practice of listening, an opening of headspace, and a regrounding of self. This third episode is devoted to the physicality of the body, the flesh, exhaustion, the labour, the extreme, immediate and temporal nature of the body. I speak with Pat Toe, Sonia Quack and Michael Lee, all of whom have found themselves in a visceral relationship to their bodies. First up is Pat. Pat creates powerful performances that often push the body's limitations. My name is Pat and I call myself a body-based artist. My resource and my research and my concern is always dealing with the body, like its shifts or its limitations and its boundaries, which are created by yeah, social constructs and um, economic anxieties and just, yeah, and how my lived experience shaped this always transforming um, medium. Yeah, so that's why I work with the body as a, as a resource, because it's so immediate. And, and in its immediacy, I just feel like, wow, that's like the most contemporary, <laughs> immediate, um, yeah, tool I, I have as an artist. Yeah, it's interesting to think about labour because I think that the idea of labour can be perceived in so many layers of the body, right? Whether it's something that's very physical and tactile and sweaty and muscular, or sometimes it's also just the mental, um, the mental concentration and the mental stress. And so even if I'm to reflect like how physically um, laborious is my, my daily life or in the way of my um, jobs for self-sustenance or even my practice, like where is the um, effort and the physical labour in, in, uh, in these ongoings of a day? There's always need to keep going. If you're not moving, you are not uh, useful and you are not, yeah, you're just all this you are not. And then, yeah, so I think it's this kind of mental mentality that I feel is, is also driving the, the drive and that drive becomes the exhaust, exhaust the exhaustion. I asked Pat about how she first discovered making artistic work from a body-based perspective. I just finished drama school and I was very frustrated by the type of the training and its methodology and how it's very... I mean, we did a lot of voice and text work, but they were mainly to feed the... Yeah, like psychological um, delivery and and storytelling. So from there, I, I just feel very detached, like, oh, how come performing and acting is just all in my head and it's all around my speech muscles and even the body and its uh, training, it's to feed this 
um, narrative, this grand narrative. So yeah, I was kind of looking for a um, a topic for myself if I'm to create my own work and what kind of methodology will I use and what kind of aesthetics will I bring in. And so I was really looking at my immediate surrounding because I really feel like, um, yeah, I was very interested in the everyday life, the pedestrian. I think it's also very much influenced from like, um, like the postmodern dance where they were just, yeah, looking at using away from like the virtuosic and just like everyday pedestrian movement. And so I was like, okay, since I like this type of work, so what is in my daily surrounding? And I think sports is something that I always gravitate towards. Like it's a, um, I think from childhood, it's always a space of, of escape. It's like swimming, right? It's like, oh, you just jump in and I just swim. And so for me, sports and, and movement have this sense of ease and pleasure to it. I mean, topography of breath kind of bounced off from boxing gym in terms of the... Um, the essence of its lines and the kind of sound that I hear in the gym. I experience psychophysical training and more type of like, it wasn't Bhutto exactly, but the artists that I was working with were influenced by Bhutto. Similarly, like uh, working with physical gestures in, in one or two projects. And so I think it's quite, for me, I'm also quite hesitant sometimes to name different school of thoughts because I feel like I just encountered them for like two production. So I wouldn't dare to say I'm like, yeah, I'm a practitioner of Gatowski and I can do like psychophysical gestures and I use Bhutto, you know. But I'll just say that these were more like encounters I had and that kind of got into my nervous system. When it comes to making my own work, I looked away from um, acting books and just wanted to look at how they train in the gym. Like, I think the kind of... Um, because, but it's useful to encounter Laban as well. Like, so I think for me, that was the most exciting subject. And I think it's quite commonly used in many acting school. And I think it's one of the postmodern dance vocabulary where he was like dissect... I think he came up with this aerobic workout type of system. And... So he broke down the body into very fundamental units. So for me, that became something I was like, oh, I can apply this and look at my daily activities um, into some kind of compositional structure. And, and yeah, so that was how I addressed the lack, I guess, from what I recalled. <laughs> when I experience different directors and what remain in my body and what I read and what I get excited about. Because I really admire some, um, like, even, like, Wim Hof, right? Or even David Blaine. Or even, like, people who are just breaking um, records in free diving, for instance. Like, I'm very curious about the state of apnea, like, in, in free diving. That's something I have been... Um, spending my time with, that quietness and that slowing down. 
And also because I think in the water, it triggers a mammalian dive reflux, which be, for me, this physical state is quite, um, re, it's really a survival instinct, right? It cools your body down so that you can actually survive better in the water. And I was like, wow, this is awesome. It's survival skill. And our body instinctively, um, physiologically just does it when your body is, when your face is submerged in the water because the temperature just cool down. And I find the idea of this as survival, like body's instinct to survive, really interesting because maybe my idea of survival is, wow, must chong ah, you know? <laughs> Better do it faster and just don't die and just keep going. So for me, that sense of um, floating your way and that sense of trust actually is like, okay, you know, you're being looked after and you can just relax because it's so important to um, drop your weight, drop all tension. I never really allow um, that kind of trust, that kind of like release and that kind of just, and you, you only have that one breath. And I have to assure myself there's oxygen and you are safe. How do I rest? I rest by moving even more. Oh my gosh. <laughs> like my gym is my rest. So I feel like, yeah, my, my, my going for classes is my, is my rest. So I actually don't really dare to give myself a rest. Oh my gosh, it's like a therapy session. It's like, oh, I don't dare to rest. <laughs> yeah, but I do sleep. I do meditate. And dance is a kind of rest for me. <laughs> It's so interesting. Like, even if it's just putting a, a very a very silly video and just copying people popping, like, it's so funny. Like, I find it so gigglish. And, and so it's funny and it's fun. And, um, or, or even just, like, sensing the body and moving, like, free movement and <clears throat> meditative type of attentive movement for me in my room is rest. Like, yeah, it's actually very restful because then I'm very, like, um, appreciative of, like, okay, this is my weight. This is where I am. And um, I'm opening up and, and I'm also reflecting the space. So I think that kind of, um, yeah, attention is very uh, joyful. I do vipassana and... And, and I love it how it's like an internal body scan. And I feel like it's a peep into something that I can't um, see. And I find it very, um, very consoling, like very comforting. It's kind of like you can't see it, but you can feel it. And for me, I also practice this amata movement. I mean, it's a teacher that I really... Um, that really opened my sensibility to movement in stillness. Um, he's Paprato and he's actually based in Solo. I mean, he's passed on, but I spent a few months with him. There was one moment I recall where we were in the garden and there were like not many people there and I was like the only person and I was getting really bored. I was like, Ayah, die, I do it. <laughs> and... Then he's like, okay. And I was just like thinking to myself, okay, what if I just squat at the bush of plants and just see, you know, like I run out of ideas. And then he's like, okay, very good. You can just um, 
in in the pause. It's like a junction. They can decide where to go. So I was like, wow, okay. And I was kind of giggling in my head. I was like, ha, ha, ha. I was just anyhow like squat, you know. But I think that that kind of practice um, was because uh, just helped me be more comfortable with um, stopping and how the stopping is also very alive with decision-making and, yeah, observing. So I'm quite inspired by him because he came from, I mean, there is traditional dance um, influences in Indonesia, but he also investigated himself by looking at Vipassana, at Sumarang, which is kind of an Indonesian um, meditation technique, which is about just let it be, just very easy, like, okay, this is a situation type of vibe. And his own going to um, temples and sites of nature to, to just like understand and create his own movement philosophy from these. So I find it, I mean, it's always inspiring to read how people just create their own system out of their own, you know, like question and and dissatisfaction. So I, I, I carry his practice quite a bit in my restful, in my rest. And I think he'll be very glad because I think um, he made me think about how um, the performativity of everyday lives, like he talked a lot about um, different types of stage. Like I think it's also quite prevalent in maybe Indonesian culture, right? Like even ritual, the, the idea of prayer, and performance is so much a part of ritual and ritual being such a big part of their of their daily lives. Um, so he sees all these daily lives as stage. So even from the Pondopo, which is like a very public space, like a shelter, and and to the marketplace or the dining space. And that made me think about, oh yeah, the performativity of this, like even how I am... Um, in my classroom or how I am eating the, my meal. So then that makes me think about, I mean, yeah, one, performativity of the body and using that as an aesthetic question and challenge, but also in how I, yeah, just choose to dial up the performativity or just dial it down and just know that my body is already performing. I mean, it's such a powerful machine, right? Even in its breathing and its digestion and all that. So I think, um, yeah, that that gives me that kind of very... I think that's how I feel the body becomes such an immediate um, resource into my movement work as well as into just the being of every day and and learning to rest in that, in its, yeah, in how powerful it is. It's like it's already so strong. The body as a machine. In the next section, I explore how this is even more sharply in focus in today's labour economy. I speak with artist Michael Lee, who worked as a grab delivery worker during the pandemic. Hi, uh, my name is Michael Lee. I'm an artist, curator, and 
educator. That's what you see in that order uh, in my bio. Uh, but I also uh, do some uh, food delivery. So although I started um, food delivery in, at, during end May 2020, um, that's when we uh, we were advised to stay home. Yeah, mask wearing was like the norm. The fact that I would be wearing a mask uh, working made it a bit easier for me to actually get into it. Um, which is to say, I I was actually quite concerned about being recognized. Actually, um, and actually, when 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 I went into the work proper, after a week, actually, I didn't care anymore because it was like so enjoyable. In food delivery, the more advanced your, your mode, eh, the more money potentially you will be making. Uh, if you are driving, you, you could be making 20K. Um, the most popular or in-demand mode would be motorcyclists because they are able to travel all around Singapore. Um, but... Basically, cyclists um, potentially earn more than walkers because they can travel further and they can move faster. They can move goods um, at a faster pace. I would walk uh, five days a week, 14-hour days. And as a walker, I, I could bring home uh, 2.5K. But if I cycled, it, it could be at least 3K. Yeah, the, the, the body comp Plained uh, in specific sequence, you know. First, uh, it would be the ankle, right? So that happened um, during the first three days. And then when I had a rest, enough rest, um, the pain goes elsewhere. Um, sometimes it's for, if I forget to distribute my, my weight, um, my, my knee would go uh, sore a little bit. But I would say, by and large, the my body became conditioned by the second week and I was good to go every day. I asked him about the precarity of delivery work, its use of the algorithm and its dependency on able bodies. Each um, role, each job has its own kind of privilege and precarity. I would say that among um, the food delivery personnel, I... Uh, talk to on a daily basis, I would be slightly more privileged than those who are doing it full-time in a sense that they have nothing else to fall back on or no savings. It pains me to, to see uh, someone, a lady who is pregnant and in green uniform waiting for her orders. It really pains me. Uh, for me, I'm slightly more privileged because I was still having my adjunct teaching as my, as my baseline. So any earning from food delivery was the bonus in that sense. So everything is run by the algorithm. And yet, the algorithm can sometimes be uh, un unfair or unfeeling. So, just off my head, I can think of like um, trying to claim for big orders. So apparently, if you receive a big order, like let's say five large packets from McDonald's, huh, um, as long as you can take a photograph of everything and send to the system, potentially you can get a, a bonus of $8 from Grab, right? 
But sometimes the, the system cannot recognize that the photograph is showing that big order and it says, sorry, no. If you're determined enough, you have to go and call up um, a human and, you know, just make sure that happens. And that having to call up the helpline in order to get that bonus that you should rightfully deserve actually eats into your working time and your income. There is a clear uh, difference between manual labor that is remunerated uh, on a per job basis or hourly basis as opposed to um, you know doing something, let's say writing a review and being paid an honorarium. There, there's a clear difference. The thing about prestige I feel or that I learned over the years is that it's not for everyone or it's not for uh, it's, at least it's not for me on every occasion. Recognizing that actually I, I really don't have that reserves that allows me to do prestige work <laughs> makes me become um, more accepting of my limitation and um, make me more aware of um, how I like to live and work. La. The good thing about an algorithm is that you don't need somebody to be there to approve things, right? It's kind of automatic. Um, and that's, that's the thing, one of the key things with blockchain as well, right? Which is like, uh, as soon as certain conditions are met, the next step is triggered. The pros of the, the food delivery app is that it's, uh, it's kind of blind, right? It, it's, um, it doesn't care whether you are, you have certain character flaw or whatever. It just, it's just a carrier of uh, information, including job opportunities. So it throws these um, job opportunities out, right? And of course, if you set your delivery app on auto-accept mode, then it will be accepting without you um, uh, knowing. And there are, of course, some people who do not want to set themselves on this that mode so that they can choose. So it's actually quite uh, democratic in that sense. So the, the fact that it is very faceless and emotionless has this advantage of overcoming prejudice that could be based on uh, gut feeling or based on looks, you know? But yeah, I mean, the, the company would try to have a human voice and uh, on the other hand, uh, on the helpline, yeah, some, sometimes they can be as uh, faceless as the machine and they may not even understand. And so this is what I mean by like, when you're in different situations, it's very hard for empathy to happen. When your stress is about answering um, helpline calls from delivery personnel who are in distress, right? Who are lost or cannot find this place and that. That is your stress. And so maybe you, all you could do is to offer one of the uh, uh, prepared answers, right? Um, but the person on the ground could be, could be losing a job, could, be, could have met with an accident, what, whatever. Although th this um, algorithm in the food delivery app that I use is not perfect. I, I feel that there's some, um, yeah, some, some of the working systems and uh, reflects principles that are quite good in addressing prejudices that happens in a social setting, social physical setting.
Yeah. So, for example, there are people who uh, don't function well in, in, in an organizational setting. And it could be a personality thing or it could be a medical condition, right? Um, and of course, right now, there, there are more and more organizations that are open to hiring uh, people with special needs even, overcoming prejudice that could be based on uh, gut feeling or based on looks, you know. The job is broken down into quite simple and discrete uh, steps that potentially, even if you um, you are not the social type or you you're on the spectrum or um, you are handicapped, physically handicapped, um, it's possible for you. So it's it's quite liberating, right? Uh, there, I know there are there are people who deliver using um, assist assistive uh, vehicle. There are really senior folks, right? Uh, white hair and all that who just manage, do what they can, right? Just do uh, like, let's say, 10 jobs for the, for the week or just do enough to get the first level of incentive. Yeah. And because of that, I, I think this, this job is actually uh, quite, uh, I mean, addresses equity in, in a not very obvious way, actually. I had never really considered how the anonymity of the algorithm could also protect in some ways. It reminded me of how difficult it is to build a space where people can both feel seen and be seen. Lastly, I speak to Sonia Quek, who works as a performance maker, a live model, and practices pole dance. We talk about this most immediate home that we inhabit. My name is Sonia. I work across the arts, creative and sometimes social sectors. I have an interest in making art and usually my work revolves around performance and the body and I am very enamoured <laughs> with what the body can be, can represent and the possibilities it holds. And usually I use it as a starting point for my explorations or investigations. Yeah, both in the very literal body as material, as a tool, but also the more, maybe what do you call it, metaphysical <laughs> or explorations of the body in terms of what it represents as a concept, or as a way of making sense of our place in the world. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> I can't believe I said that. <laughs> oh, and like, I work as a performer, as a live model, and as sometimes a teacher, facilitator. I also do pole dancing as a hobby. And I just started bouldering recently. So I think I have a personal interest in doing more body-based kind of hobbies where there is some kind of physical exertion of the body. What I'm interested in is mainly to do with the body as archive, the body as interface, the body as material, both in a very tangible material sense but also in terms of 
intangible, emotional, historical, memory, that kind of material. And also very felt sensations, vibrations, that kind of thing as pathways to understanding or making sense of the world. Reading Audrey Lotz, The Uses of the Erotic, was very powerful for me. Her whole, actually her whole body of essays in her book, um, Sister Outsider, I think that uh, was literally a life-transforming book, you know, that kind of thing for me. She had said like how like something that's always been used and named against you, you can actually own it. And actually, you've always had it. And it's about coming into yourself, coming into your, your power. I think that's what, to me, is what it means to be erotic. Like when you can know your desires and own your desires and like, you know, assert yourself in yourself without um, feeling like um, you're playing up to a certain standard or certain gaze or a certain, um, what do you call it, pressure from other people. There is a term I also learned from Actually, from Rizma and Putra, from, from when I, I performed with Nada once, and I remember like um, Rizma had said, like, Shok Sendiri, which is like, Shok yourself. In like, when we were preparing the performance in terms of the choreography, and for me, the idea of Shok Sendiri is also something that I also, after that, learned from um, Hashima from Prisma, which is a company that, a dance company that I'm an associate artist with, that also has been life-transforming for me. <laughs> and um, anyway, Shok Sendiri, there's something about it that is linked to the idea of what Hashima also says, like it's self-soothing. And I think that that to me is also powerful in terms of how it links to eroticism because you know how to soothe yourself, you know how to take care of yourself, you know what you need. Just this recent two years of pandemic when I felt this sense of disheartenedness, I remember when in Singapore, when suddenly all the places that are important to me, arts institutions, not all, but many, had suddenly had their space taken away from them. Or not taken away, but um, that's also like, I, do, I refuse to, to want to also believe that narrative. But the idea of suddenly their spaces, um, they have to vacate. Because it was like, suddenly, does this country have space for, for for people who just want to make work that um, is not about um, a certain social, political agenda <laughs> or like if your work doesn't fit into making sense on paper for certain grand bodies, <laughs> then suddenly it's like you cannot make sense to exist in this place, in this in this city we live in. And for me, I guess when you talk about like resistance, that made me feel a certain way in my body to feel like, well, then the, because these are the places where I felt the kind of work that I make grew or had a chance to be featured in. And then suddenly, uh, these are the only places I would contemplate going to them. I'm like, then where, where does our work sit? But then I think the other thing that I find very powerful and why I feel that the body is still so powerful nowadays because you are the only person who can inhabit this particular body you have 
at this moment of time in this place. Nobody else is going to have it. They can do things to your body. They can make the space you you live in, you know, have to you have to find ways to around to exist, blah blah blah. But they cannot actually like take away your in your own inhabitation of your body. So every time you do something that allows you to inhabit your body more fully, you are coming to your power more. And that is something that to me is still the most radical act at the end of the day, you know, like anytime you do something small, even if it's like you wake up that morning and you stretch just because you give yourself like two minutes, one minute to stretch a little bit more. You took that time for yourself, right? Compared to like just rushing to the rest of your day. Yeah. And sometimes it's not always Victoria. Sometimes it's also a moment of pain. Like if you also feel like that day you allow yourself to rest a little bit or to feel the the weight of that pain as well. You know, it's not always easy, but the moment that you allow yourself to feel your body, to 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 not resist the body, what your body's trying to give you, the information, the when you tr- the moment you even try to attempt to have conversation with your body a little bit, just feel it, just like hey, I'm here as well. Like I think that's already powerful. Yeah, anytime you do that, it's powerful and that's. That's resistance, right, for everybody. (laughs) Yeah, I guess. (laughs) To come into one's own through our most immediate vessel can be a struggle in a society that makes other demands. But because we live in a capitalist society and we need to survive, (laughs) then that's the part where you do feel a bit... uh, uh, Like, you know, sometimes when you're in like... Money, 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 right? Like... I mean, this question, I think you, when you ask it, probably you're also thinking, yeah, because blue labor jobs are, blue labor, blue collar, blue collar jobs are always paid so much less, right? They're, they're correct. Blue collar is the, yeah. I mean, like, look at construction workers, look at F&B workers in Singapore, look at, yeah, all the service, hospitality-oriented jobs um, and all the construction jobs in Singapore. Um, they suck. The pay sucks. <laughs> We all know like sex workers here who literally are the most body worker work to me, if you ask me. There's always, I mean, stigma and shame beyond that. But yeah, but if you think about it, they are also they use their body so much. There's always a certain type of precarity linked to these kind of jobs. When I say this kind, I mean basically just jobs that are not working in a full-time institution. And when I say this kind, I mean people's jobs who require a certain um, use of the body. Yeah. And I wish it wasn't the case. I don't know when or how society will be able to change the way they view it. We are a country that outsources domestic labour a lot. You know, any things to do with domesticity. I mean, I was raised by a helper you know, and I'm not unique in that way because a lot of people do that. And I guess that shows the attitude we have that in in, in our country, maybe not just our country, but certain societies like ours, that such, somehow um, they have outsourced certain kind of body labor to get higher wages for working outside or something certain economics and politics of 
how things are run are quite um, entrenched in certain systems. So that that bleeds down like this. But when you do body work, you also use your body intelligence. That's also that's brain work in a different way. But you know, it's like the typical thing where I don't know, like somehow jobs that on paper appear to use your brain a lot will ensure a higher return than you using your body. Maybe that's the price that they pay because they have to give up using their body. So they have to be tethered to a job, to a table. Maybe they're paying you so much because they know that later on you need to go and get physiotherapy. I'm joking. <laughs> but like, yeah, maybe. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I don't know. I think I, I, I've... If you ask me, I feel angry about it. I feel sad about it. But I don't think it will stop me from doing the work I like to do. All the people who are essential workers, you know, people who work F&B, people who are delivery men, people who work in the, like, you know, healthcare. healthcare, you know. So you admit that these jobs are essential. These jobs that are so dependent on the body being, a bodily presence being there. But you still don't, I don't see the reflection of change in the value either, right? Like, in, of their labour. But maybe that's actually a win. You see, they, they meet. these are the most essential things. But So maybe... But I think people are starting to realise how important a lot of these things. But I think actually the resistance is because to, to change. It's actually because you're, you, you're unwilling to pay more for what needs to be paid more for. You know? And so you instill fear that, uh, you see, if you don't do this job, you'll be replaced by a robot. Actually, if they replace a robot, then maybe they can do their job better. <laughs> Yeah, and then they can focus on what the robot cannot do. <laughs> yeah, but then you know that then you have to pay more for that. <laughs> and and I think that's where the resistance is. At the end of the day, it's the only home I will truly inhabit. And it's the one relationship that is lifelong, you know. And that's actually very beautiful if you ask me. It's to take the time to... Take the time, I mean, that's all we have. <laughs> we only have time. <laughs> Soma Stories is produced by Artwave Studio in collaboration with Tell Your Children. If you enjoyed listening, continue to support us by leaving a positive review on our listening platform of choice. As always, we've included the relevant links and they can be found on artwave.studio slash somastories. In the next episode, we explore the gaze, what it means to see and to be seen. I will be speaking with artist Noor, fashion photographer Jaya Kadir, and Miss Singapore Universe Nandita Bana. Thank you for listening and see you again.